hey Tam Sam. Hi. Hi, so lovely. Hi, not at all. Nice yeah. to see you again. Really good to see you. Thank you so much again for the invite to your launch. I really enjoyed it. It was so nice and really, really cool. And the the venue was amazing. And uh, yeah, what what a what an evening. Yeah, it was lovely to meet you in person. And it felt like one of those times where I met so many people for the first time in person. And it was yeah. just, it was really lovely. I think we. I mean, I had a great time. It was. Yeah. Um, it's the first time I've done an event like that for a while, you know, had a had a party. So it was yeah, it was good yeah. for good for the ending. I never normally do that. I never go to like graduations and stuff. So it's nice to put something in my hand. Yeah, it's nice to um actually do that this time and say, you know, this is done and yeah. celebrate. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely deserved a celebration. <laughs> the amount of work you put into it. I mean, I because I remember when um so my my episode I did on your MITC was in May 2018 I think when I interviewed John and I remember then we you know he was talking about how you're you're doing this book and um you were getting sponsorship at that point I think you were still getting sponsorship for it and um, even from then, I remember thinking, oh, that sounds so interesting I can't wait to speak to Tamsin <laughs> so, so like I mean that's five years in the making isn't it yeah five years since 2018 to now yeah so wow it's good for you to say that because I always think of it as three years and I forget that time just kind of it has continued (laughs) maybe it was three years I don't know but yeah I mean I started researching psychological impact of touring in 2016 late 2016 and then that research was um kind of submitted in in 2018 and that's when I started yeah going for the sponsorship it's taken ages it yeah. really has taken ages um but um but yeah it's a long it's a long thing writing a book I mean you've done it, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, don't know. it. I mean it's I think ours were very different processes because you had to collate different chapters from different people and it, 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 there's something very um, I've got it right here it, like it feels it feels uh, it's so it's like a bible you know it's like um you've got chapters for I mean it's very academic like very rigorous um so I can imagine like the amount of effort that went into like the accuracy of everything like the way everything's referenced it's so slick and cross-referenced and I remember when you were um I think you'd written it and then you I think you had put a tweet out that it was too many words and you had to reduce it and I could only imagine what that must have been like with with all the the cross-referencing and then I I can't imagine what the copy edit of this must have been like (laughs) go backs and forths loads of editors you know I had friends that were kind of feeding back and then my clinical super so I had a a book supervisor Susan Rayburn who's written a couple of chapters Paula Thompson was the clinical editor because because we wanted it to be accurate um as as accurate as as we could and then it goes through all the kind of publishing edits and stuff and one point we sent it out to lots of friends and, and people in the industry like Susie Green and journalist friends like Mark Beaumont who then fed back as well so we had these kind of lots of layers it probably took a year or so to do to do the editing but I mean it's yeah it was believe it or not it was even bigger by like a couple hundred pages and I mean you can expand it in every which way really it's one of those things but yeah stop somewhere 
You mentioned just there that um, you started the research, whether um, in late 2016, did I hear that right? Yeah. Was that part of your MA? Because I remember you were doing a, you said you were doing a master's. Yeah, that was your master's research. Exactly. So that was, um, that was the master's MA on the psychological impact of touring, interviewing Mm -hmm. four high profile artists and touring artists. And from there, I mean, it was kind of based on, you know, my observations from years before when I've been sort of touring and involved in live but I wanted to dig a bit deeper and from there I was like oh wow there is so much here like and it's just you know at that point I mean there's quite a lot of um people in the field now as you know we're kind of you know quite a burgeoning um field in, in um in contemporary music and uh, but at that point, there wasn't an awful lot out there. That was when um, Sally Gross and, oh God, I forgot his name, George Musgrave um, had their kind of landmark research came out. And, and there was more um, visibility around places like Bapan, um, but there wasn't much focus on touring at that point. There, there has been since, and there's been some brilliant, like huge studies by Ian Newman and Zach Bora and, and some people in the States. And over here as well, Paul Hanna did something, I think it was 2018. I might get the dates wrong. I'm quite dyslexic, so dates, <laughs> dates aren't great, which is why we had Geordie do his chapter, because I, like, I can't. But um, but yeah, so, um, so but at that point, no one was really looking at touring. And I was like, it's such an un- unusual sort of experience that really you have to go on the road to get I thought I kind of knew what it was all about until I went out on the road and then oh wow there's all of these additional it's not just what touring adds but what touring takes away and deprives you from in terms of kind of social contact and the things that usually keep you stable um so it's you know it it is something that is incredibly challenging and then you add in all the lifestyle factors and the pressures and demands and unfamiliar environments and all of the additional stresses um it's just it's a it's an unusual phenomenon as we might say in kind yeah. of you know, therapy <laughs> well I think what it your trajectory into it really fascinated me because I know you started out and um, you were a you were a venue booker and then you went into artist management didn't you with like um do you want to give a bit of an overview of your career in music before that before you trained in therapy sure well um oh god I don't know I was I was a kid who was music obsessed really like I went to a lot of gigs and shows and was involved in um the kind of club scene in Liverpool and the gig scene in Liverpool and stuff um and I really wanted to be involved in music originally I had ambitions to to be a musician but that was really early on so I'm not cut out for that at all and uh which is why I find which is why I avoid press before years. <laughs> oh god uh being in the spotlight is quite tricky but um but, you know, I, I occasionally, yeah, I mean, I won't go into that too much, but then I, so I kind of fell into, well, I didn't fall into music, I actively pursued it, but at first I wanted to be a journalist, and I wasn't very good at that, so, uh, so I kind of interned at the Observer Music magazine, and I um, started working at, um, at a festival called Stand and Calling, and started working at a promoters called Leyline, and I took over their indie nights, basically, they had small and large indie nights, and then from there I went into... Um, I mean, Fiddler is an in-house booker at some of their London venues, the Boardline, stuff like that. And and yeah, and I uh, and then I had a bit of time. I was kind of managing some artists on the side. Um, and before um, I was kind of in between jobs at one stage and a friend of mine, Hiroki, um, who manages Anna Calvi, said, um, 
I know you're a massive Nick Cave fan. Anna's going out on the road with Grindman, the Nick Cave and the Bad Sea Side oh. Project, going to Europe to fancy it. And I'd sent many artists out on the road by this point and was like, I know this, this will be, I can do this. You know, I've worked in house at venues, I've run shows, you know, I was a show rep on and off for different people as well and, and running my own shows. So I thought, yeah, I've got this down. And quite quickly when I was out on the road, my mental health started to dip. Just my outlook, it wasn't severe. It was like, you know, poor mental health. It wasn't wasn't anything too bad. But at that point, I'd been in therapy for quite a long time, dealing with sort of childhood trauma stuff and various bits and bobs um, that were kind of activated in the music industry, I'd say, that it was becoming hard to ignore. So I was in therapy and then had... So I had started to have a bit of a language for what I was seeing and seeing... Mm. You know how people's behavior was changing on the road you know irritability and withdrawal and you know and just the kind of compound stress and the fatigue that builds um so yeah and then there was this kind of like horrendous name dropping moment that I, I talk about sometimes about um you know we had this post-show dinner where we were talking about therapy um around the dinner table and it was um, we were sort of talking about what was what we found beneficial about it, there was this moment where that later I remembered and I was thinking, oh, Nick Cave's in therapy. You know, I wonder who is that, you know, what's that like as a job? What a fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. So I ended up in a recording studio called Metropolis um, and I really enjoyed it, but it was quite challenging in a number of ways for me personally. And I was starting to think, actually, do you know what? I'm just not sure. I'm not very you know um money orientated really so I'd curate stuff that I liked but it you know it wasn't sort of making huge amounts of money um and thought actually I'm much better with people um so my therapist at the time and I worked with a coach who used to be a music manager and they said look I think you're better you're better off actually finding something more empathic you know people that have trauma often have this kind of extra sense of being able to pick up when people are in distress and be around it and so I started um co-running a homeless shelter and started retraining as a therapist and um and that's yeah that was kind of it and then as I was training and I was talking a little bit about training um people started referring clients to me and like tour manager friends in the beginning and then it was kind of management and and then I would you know since then it's just built from there and you get referrals from you know the whole range of people that work in music um yeah incredible there's the stuff you've mentioned there I wanted to um pull out because what I find so unique about what you've done specifically you said obviously the touring part is unique in itself because that wasn't looked at so much um as part of what people were talking about when they were referring to music and mental health but also you brought in this other element of it's not just the musicians either because you you know obviously the jobs that you described it's the whole all the road crew the roadies the tour managers all of that who are part of that system and how they get impacted and you had that first-hand experience of it on the road I thought that was a really um helpful insight into what you're describing like at the whole systemic level on a huge scale yeah and I think you know even beyond that too I mean there was some research that came out by Skibble I can't remember when it was but it was a few years ago um, that I I mentioned in chapter one which was talking about the pressure on promoters Mm -hmm. um, you know who often shoulder the majority of the risk and 
um, the kind of long hours. Um, and that was really striking. It was, you know, sort of really drawing attention to, to that client group. But then, of course, you've got agents as well who are under yeah. pressure. And so somebody who works very closely with me, Laura Newton and I, <clears throat> we lived together many moons ago when I was a promoter and she was an agent and we now work together in MITC. And so I've, I saw it from her side. She was up at all hours, you know, dealing with issues at airports and liaising across territories. And yeah. I don't know. I mean, my impression more generally of the music business is that it tends to attract quite um complex people I don't know maybe I mean I suppose everyone's complex in a way aren't they but it does attract you know that it's once you sort of start noticing um what vulnerability can look like you're like oh god it's everywhere in music you know lots of people there's lots there's been lots of agent suicides for example I mean I say lots there's certainly been you know a small handful that I can think of and I know lots of touring people who've died by suicide or uh, you know issues related to lifestyle and the impact on the heart and things like that so this is a you know it's a complex industry and it attracts unusual unconventional people and yeah yeah that's the thing as well because you mentioned there you were talking about your own experiences of of trauma which which I won't go into obviously unless you wanted to but I it just made me think about you know that aspect of um what a lot of the research findings have have been around how there is a kind of correlation please correct me if I've got this wrong but like the correlation between it not it that it's not that the industry itself is inherently problematic and therefore anyone that goes into it is going to suffer with mental health issues but as you say the people who go into the industry come into the industry with these particular triggers and traumas and wounds that they may have experienced that they're then bringing into um, their roles and when you mix that in with the environment of the industry um, things like childhood trauma and these old wounds get triggered um, which then exacerbates a lot of the issues so it's a kind of in a way like a very volatile cocktail for these things to get bred I think that was the the sense I got and that I'm getting the more and more I do these podcasts that's what comes out and trauma seems to be really at the heart of a lot of it um early early adverse experiences in childhood for sure I mean I think um you know I guess I'm, I'm trying to think whether this is accurate before I say it my impression is that actually a lot of the research hasn't got hasn't really looked at that part yet but that we as clinicians and and people who are certainly um expressing you know using musical as a vehicle for catharsis and processing and things like that and that we know it's so effective for um know that colloquially but I wonder whether that's a bit of the I mean I think there is some research that touches upon this but it's it's not often a um as much of a focus as I personally think it could be but then you know I'm an attachment based therapist I'm all about childhood (laughs) do you know what I mean I don't want to overemphasize it either because because the conditions of the music are so turbulent and and you know unpredictable and competitive and stuff that I think that is just a lot generally to be in so Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a prerequisite that the people suffering always have um, you know, adverse childhood experiences, but there there is some research by, say, Bellis actually, um, Bellis Hughes, 
who looked at the correlation between childhood trauma and um, and musicians um, and uh, adverse sort of health outcomes. So that was one piece of research. Um, and I think they were looking retrospectively through biographies and stuff. So maybe I, I need to sort of amend that, but there is some, it, it's just, it's interesting in the large scale studies, I don't think they look at that so much. Mm-hmm. They tend to look at, you know, what are the stresses named that people experience in the industry? And, you know, by and large, they say, oh, creating music or experiencing music is cathartic, but the the conditions of the industry itself are, you know, yeah. problematic. Yeah, yeah. You, you said a word there that um, I wanted to ask you. You said this word attachment, and um, it's um, yeah, it's it's really helpful because there's a whole chapter that you've dedicated to attachment, which I think is such important groundwork for getting an understanding of how, in a way, like the seed of where a lot of things can how far back things can can go and when you then get to the later chapters where like for example Geordie's chapter um where he's talking about the research into um what research has actually been done in the area and what 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 we know so far of the prevalence of particular mental health issues in the industry and then looking at the wider landscape of what being on the road is like that's where the attachments really make sense because what you've described is like if you've got if you've got a band so if we just take the typical you know standard rock band let's say on the road for I don't know seven eight weeks in the US you've got you've got five band members presumably all with different attachment styles from their own childhoods or with different experiences on a tour bus together and then you've got the road crew with them and you've got um, music journalists hanging around. You've got fans um, coming in and out of uh, after each show. You've got the buzz of the show itself, this huge high followed by this sudden low of like withdrawing from the gigs, going back to the hotel, sudden isolation from, from complete chaos. Um, and then the downtime, and then um, there's nothing to eat and the only place to eat. I think I read something in the book. There was a quote. I can't remember which uh, which artist it was that said this, that all that they had available to them was KFC or day after day or something. Um, and um, obviously that sense of like your all your resilience and resources and um everything you have in you is getting increasingly depleted uh, for weeks on end and and how that is going to sort of um, make you tired where you're going to be tired on the road because you're not sleeping and then there's alcohol and then there's drugs and it it just creates such a picture of um, someone that (laughs) just totally resource depleted at the end of it and then a mix of these attachment styles and how you can imagine the the conflict that arises from that and how people deal with that and what people do with it, the people that are withdrawing, the, the band members that are uh, going forward and, and and trying to hash out any conflicts, the band members that are running away from it and what that does to the dynamic on the road and then ultimately how that impacts the show as well. Um, yeah, so 
brilliantly yeah. said. I love uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just, it was just so, it's just, you, you, I think what I like is that you've kind of, um, you've demonstrated like the, the big picture of it, um, which, although I think, I think most people can appreciate the sense of it but you've really sort of outlined it so clearly like with rigor as well it's like unrefutable like let's look at the evidence all the way from the moment it's happening all the way back to childhood and theory and you brought theory into it um it I think it's so important and yeah um yeah, I'd, I'd really like, I mean, there's lots of, so in researching it, I kept thinking, oh, there's loads of different, like, additional research bits you could do. And if anyone's out there, you know, you could go out on the road and do cortisol studies with saliva to get a measure of the stress hormones, or you could, you know, you could do, there's a lot of research on attachment, but you could measure, you know, people's attachment styles and then interview them at different points. You know, I'm not going to do that research. I'm not good. <laughs> But someone else can do it. You know, it would be, I think you can kind of drill down into it even more in a way. But yeah, you're right. People will have different responses on the road. And and they talked about that. You know, some people said, well, I was in, you know, these unfamiliar environments and that's really overwhelming for me. And I didn't feel confident enough to leave my hotel room and be able to go for a run, you know, down the local river or, or whatever. Um and that's partly maybe to do with attachment as well about how people respond and how safe they feel when they're out on the road. And then as you say, yeah, there's all, you know, you're eating party food most nights. So you're eating sort of fast food. And obviously that's not going to, you know, that's not optimal sort of nutrition. Um, or for people um, who have eating difficulties, it can be, you know, that's why we had nutrition chapter, eating disorders chapter, you know, thing, things that you're struggling with um may be exacerbated by the circumstances and the stress of being on the road and not having control over as much control over what you're eating some people find that anyway and um you know if you're um you know one way that you regulate and attachment is is about emotional regulation i should have probably said that really it's about how we learn to regulate um and um you know, if your way of regulating is to sedate through food, through carbohydrates, perhaps, which is, you know, one of the ways that's, you know, fairly effective at bringing the nervous system down, has these knock-on effects for your health later on, just like alcohol does and, and drugs mm-hmm. do, but they've got that momentary effectiveness that makes them so tempting. And you're surrounded by pastries and pizzas and okay. whatever you're going to you're going to really struggle to mm-hmm. to sort of resist that or you're going to struggle to not when you you're apprehensive and you're holding all of that um sort of pre-show anxiety or pre-interview anxiety or post-show you know adrenaline and cortisol you're going to struggle not to neck a load of beers perhaps if that's mm-hmm. if that's your if you're under-resourced, as you say, and you're surrounded by um, things that are very tempting like that. So it's kind of about, I guess, one thing we want to do with the book is say, look, there are other ways. There are other ways to decompress, to regain a sense of felt safety, to do touring, to plan touring and to be on the road that can give people other options. Mm. Um, It's about sort of, you know, that holistic look let's look mind brain body relationships let's look from the venue's perspective and the agent's perspective and but of course some some stuff's free to do 
um, and we're hoping to, you know, build on the book in different ways to try and help with psychoed. But um, and stuff, some stuff costs a bit of money, and it, you know, that's of course a challenge. Like, who pays for that? I don't know. I can't answer that question. Maybe brands. Who knows? They seem to have lots of money these days involved in shows. I don't know. But yeah. somebody somewhere, you know, something has to has to change. Really, we can't say. Oh God, you know, people keep suffering and I don't know why it is. Maybe it's the artist's temperament, which I think has been one of the ways that we've avoided really yeah. taking care of people. Now we know actually, you know, okay, there might be an aspect of temperament in there or mm. what's being carried through, but there's also a lot about circumstances, lifestyle, schedule, intensity that mm. actually can be changed. Um, yeah. Perhaps not always easily, but they can be. Yeah. So, Yeah, yeah. There's a real sense of hope in that. And I think that's also what's um, different about the book is that you it, it's full of it is full of advice, too. It's it's mm-hmm. kind of like, here's the research and here's how So if someone is actually on the road, they can have the book almost and sort of flick through it and and find tangible tips in there and. Um, an example of one that I saw because you, you've you've got a whole chapter on relationships as well which which was really interesting about you know what goes on when like someone's got a family and they have to leave the family behind and what that does to romantic relationships or parent-child relationships um and wh- how you can have um conversations with family beforehand and set certain boundaries and um yeah there's a lot of uh support there I think that there's a tone of compassion there's a there's a tone of um facilitation about it and and a sense of um signposting there's a lot of signposting as well which I think is useful if you're if you're actually on the road and you're thinking oh I'm stuck like there's a lot of places you can go with this book and as you say like it's it's a book you don't have to go and do a workshop to find this stuff out you can literally have it in your hand which is useful I think um next to your guitar and your <laughs> yeah oh, I'm so glad you think that um that's really encouraging because that that's the aim and it's interesting because I'm you know doing a bit of press at the moment and some journalists that I've I've been interviewed by have been it, it's been quite it, it's been quite interesting to hear their um sort of stance on it where the, some of the questions have been quite leading in a way of mm. yeah but the industry is never going to change right and I'm like do you know what I don't buy that I don't mm. I think that's a cop out I think that you know that's what we're trying to do that's what we're all trying to do actually and there's loads of us now and we're all you know actually (laughs) trying to to change things so I'm not having this everything's just set and we've just got a you know we're pushing against systems and that's always hard right but um actually these systems are made up of individuals and I think there's a lot of goodwill out there and there's a lot of people who are under phenomenal pressure who are making decisions um, based, you know, sort of rooted in the way that things are done that are actually thinking differently. So, you know, I kind of feel like we've got to work with people, not just criticise and not just say, oh, everything's flawed and, you know, the industry is really exploitative. I mean, you know, yes, (laughs) it's sort of in a very black and white way. Yes, it is. That's the basis of, of 
what it does but there's also a lot more to it and and one thing that we're working on at the moment so there's a website touringmanual.com which has got some of the kind of overflow stuff that we had to take out some exercises and like there's a pre-tour questionnaire to sort of get a rough idea of someone's vulnerability and what works for them on the road and what doesn't so you can make some adjustments but on there we want to we've started to build this kind of global resource list, basically, of um, <clears throat> sort of tried and tested, verified organisations. We can't do individuals. It's just a little bit too much betting. But that will mean that, say, if you're in Toronto and um, and you need to talk to somebody or you need to access some, you know, specialised healthcare, then that's where you go. So that's, I mean, we're probably going to need a bit of investment to sort of expand it in the way that we want to. But there's lots missing. We don't have a global database of resources. We have in individual organizations in areas or territories and it's like okay let's have a one-stop shop um, yeah. yeah I mean just hearing you there I mean just thinking you know the the energy it's like it's really giving me a sense of how much work you, you've put into all of this and um I'm thinking that you you really struck me when you said a lot of people are almost pushing back um on this idea that somehow it should change or there's some, like almost like there's some fear about what that would mean for the impact on the music or something or a fear that things that we've got used to in the narratives around what the industry is about will change it sounds like there's a lot of fear or something fear of change um, yeah. yeah maybe and I think there's something of you know I guess I, I I feel, and I don't know whether this is just you know my um, my experience of what it's like to then promote a book like this, but there's a lot of interest in you know um, in the suffering. There's a lot of interest in the suffering. There's a bit less interest in okay, what do we do about that? Yeah. Saying okay, that's interesting, isn't it? That we've got all of these. You know, I've been contacting loads of journalists and saying, "Oh, you wrote this article. Would you be interested in this book? It's about you know all the issues that you've mentioned there." But it's it's sort of and not basically people aren't that bothered. <laughs> kind of oh. like I don't know. I mean, that's not you know. There's also lots of people that have been incredibly yeah. supportive. You know, people aren't obliged to write about your book, right? But it's mm. interesting that I think there is more of a, you know, this harks back to, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, myths like the tortured artist and the 27 Club and mm. stuff that we try to debunk a little bit. Mm. And, um, you know, we're trying to sort of draw, say, look, suffering doesn't have to be inevitable, mm. actually. I mean, some stress related stuff will be inevitable, I think, because it's a stressful industry and any amount, you know, when we're exposed to stress, um, we have a threshold of, you know what and for each of us it's slightly different you know of what we can cope with and then when we're continually pushed past that then there's going to be some impact and some people are being more susceptible to stress-related illnesses than others so mm. you know we can't eradicate all stress some stress is good it's motivating but there are some things that we can say look th these are the warning signs to look out for actually let's not just characterize that person and this is I sorry I'm, I know I'm really waffling but no, like no 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 please go 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 <laughs> well I think that this is one thing that's then um there's another part to this that I'm thinking about a lot at the moment as I'm on Twitter quite a bit and um mm. and we I see these pylons you know and and mm. um I've been reading a little bit about it like that wonderful John Ronson book so you've been publicly shamed and stuff like mm. that and there's this real appetite for um 
for condemnation, for, you know, mm. people are good or bad if they slip up or if they do something, you know, people have the capacity to harm others and hurt people hurt people. We know that mm. as therapists, there's often a, a root. Um, and I think that this is sometimes where some additional problems can happen when people are um, acting out in some way or they're, you know, um, hurtful to themselves or other people or they're chaotic or they're you know not aware of how they're impacting others or they're being intentionally harmful there's all these you know additional things on top of that as you know rather than getting that person help sometimes at the moment we have these kind of you know online courts that are not recognizing it as what it might also be which is not to diminish the impact of harm to victims or survivors in any way but is also to go okay you know what that looks like to me that looks like that person needs some help let's step Mm -hmm. in there and we'll let the authorities or whoever needs you know where the kind of real justice systems kick in but we've got this additional kind of online justice system now which is making things quite complex I think it's so complex isn't it it's it's shifted a lot of things in the ways that you've just described especially and also this sea change that you mentioned before the resistance uh, that the way the fan bases are interacting with their idols wanting to know more and more and more and more about them in a way that seems so different now to how it was they which I suppose has good and I use this phrase good and bad again but it's got pros and cons let's say because there would have been a time where if you wanted to know something about your favorite band or artist, you would have had to go to like the music press or something. You'd read these long form interviews, but then what you're getting is a kind of stylized, idealized version of that artist. And then that fed into all the mythology of them, I guess. So you could, I guess you could argue now we get a more sort of authentic, direct connection with the artist who gets to be in control of what they put out there but then on the other side on the flip side of that the demand for them to show themselves has become so great that I think you've mentioned this in a previous interview that there's a real pressure on artists to overexpose um, and share things that they may not be prepared for yet and, and a blurring of boundaries that can in itself be quite traumatic that is a new area in a way because it's it's getting more pronounced with social media it is um it is much more pronounced with social media and um you know artists need to be content creators and marketers and um mm. they you know their skill set has um expanded in most genres i'd say there are some genres that are kind of you know less active mm. on the socials in that kind of way but yes. i think also it comes from you know perhaps a bit of um anxiety from the teams around artists that saying we've got to give the people what they want you know they want more and these platforms are saying you want more and I don't know, I think we've got to think about the impact of that, of not just of like overexposing yourself and having to sort of present quite ordinary parts of your life as somehow interesting and spectacular and all the challenges that come with that, as well as these kind of behind the scenes um, glimpses into what life's like. The artists are now spokespeople, you know, I suppose they've always been spokespeople in, in different ways, but um, for different causes, mm-hmm. things like that. And there's, you often see these kind of responses from artists online to, you know, critique 
from fans. And I think it gives us an enormous amount of power. Too, in my mind, too much power. I think we could rein that in a bit. You know, and there's um, that, um, you know, we talk a little bit about parasocial relationships in the book, you know, that one way intense relationship, which is a lot to um, be on the other side of. As an artist, you're meeting people's fantasies of who you are, good and bad, and you're meeting you know, jealousy and envy and rivalry and competition and scarcity and all of these yeah. other things. And and those lenses, you know, distort, can distort, have the power to distort um, how you feel about yourself. You know, some people start to fragment. Mm-hmm. There was an interview I actually didn't include much of it in the book in the end because of you know, editing and stuff, but which was very interesting about um, somebody's um, kind of shattering of, of self-identity, really, because through fame, is the, the more exposure they got, the more confused and fragmented their sense of who they were became. I think that's mm. you know, there's probably a lot of material out there on this sort of thing. But um, yeah, and some people become more grandiose as a protective mechanism. Some people become actually much more fearful. But I've worked with lots of artists who, you know, are, are preoccupied with the idea that somebody's going to root something out and find them. That there's this kind of sense of danger of being online. That mm. something will be something won't age well. Something has felt different for the other person than it did do for them, or you know they've changed, or they were you know young and um, provocative in some way, and maybe spoke you know. Got the growing up with the public eye. I mean, I the things I said and did in my teenage years and twenties. God, I wouldn't want that documented forever on the internet. Absolutely no, not. No, especially yeah, with things like TikTok now, like. Um... Gosh, just million! I've got this image of like in about ten years' time, there'll be these millions of mini videos just suspended in the ether on the internet somewhere. That a bit like MySpace, where it kind of disappeared and everything's just, just held in cyberspace somewhere. There's going to be all these TikTok videos <laughs> held in cyberspace somewhere that someone will access in about fifty years and go, "What on earth is this?" <laughs> I mean, it's changing the game, isn't it? I, I yeah. work. A&Rs that are, you know, have to adjust their way of working now that TikTok yeah. sort of yeah. well. But yeah, there's a, it's all of this material. And I mean, you know, maybe there's something about quality and quantity and sort of meaningfulness and, and yeah. I don't know. But you would, I suppose lots of people would argue this is just the way the world works now and we have to mm. adapt. And, um, I don't know. That's not my area of speciality. Yeah you know as to what people should do but it's really about thinking like what what's the impact of this to the individual how they respond and what does this mean to them yeah it's just given me a thought because um what you were saying earlier about attachments um it's made me think of actually you know this threat of the industry like the the threat of change I guess could almost be seen as like the threat of the removal of the caregiver because I'm just thinking about like when you were describing um disorganized attachments like if you take the attachment style of uh someone with a disorganized attachment where, where it's kind of like not clear how they might respond um but then the caregiver's taken away as much as the as much as the attachment might not have been helpful there's still this threat of loss 
through mm-hmm. that. And I'm just wondering whether there's something similar going on with, um, yes, this is how the industry has been, but it's what we know. And it's kind of, it's our attachment to it and that all of this is is going to threaten that and whether there's something there going on. That, funnily enough, that's one of the sort of things I was thinking, oh, book oh. two. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, the industry. I don't think that's, I mean, I don't think I'll ever write again at the moment. Oh. But, but yeah, you're absolutely right, because you've got potentially a caregiver that can, that is inconsistent, um, that is um, both the source of comfort and the source of um, stress. Yeah. You know, if you think of the, if we can think of the industry as a caregiver, and you, you know, you could look at attachments in terms of a manager and an artist as well, or a tour manager and an artist, or production manager and crew you know you can there are these other when you're working with someone for a, a long amount of time and actually we did speak to somebody who um we were talking about the their tour manager being their kind of replacement attachment figure but yeah we there's a very i mean lots of artists are very open about their complex feelings about the industry mm. and i think lots of artists have complex feelings about the press like i, I found it fascinating last week and the week before where there was this like mass um sort of twitter response to um oh god i've forgotten his name the galway girl guy what's his name again but really famous artist you know yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, so, oh what's his name ed sheeran there you go oh, oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so ed sheeran wrote has written a, a few, well he's spoken to a couple of people recently and it's shown his kind of um maybe disdain's a bit strong but he sort of said you know he, do, he doesn't really think too much about the press so much it's more about the interaction with the artists the, with this audience and lots of journalists were quite offended by that I think and came out on Twitter saying well actually we have a really important role and don't dismiss us sort of thing which I get that you know they felt under threat in some way but at the same time, and I, I sort of started wading in a few times and I thought, you know, just leave it. <laughs> it's not worth it, mate. It's not worth it. You know, like a pub brawl. But I, I kind of held back because I was thinking, well, you know, I see it from the artist side. I'm naturally mm-hmm. empathic to, you know, my client base, of course, who I feel yeah. quite and I was thinking well of course they have a complex relationship with the press because you have the capacity to elevate and to celebrate and to you know promote their music but you know you also have the potential to be destructive and press can and do you know sometimes give scathing personal attacks um on what can be very deeply personal work so it would to me make quite a lot of sense if an artist um felt that they needed to protect against that and take it with a pinch of salt and also it's a way of you know you can't read all the press I've fallen foul of this recently I keep scouring for like oh how's the book being received and everyone likes it which is fair enough it won't be everyone's cup of tea but it's fun to read it for sure oh, they didn't quite get it, or, oh, yeah, maybe they've got a point there. It hurts. And so for an artist, I mean, you know, it's not like loads of people review this book, it's pretty niche. If you're an artist, you're getting that all the time. It's not healthy to absorb all of that. You do have to have some distance. And ultimately, it's not written for you. It's written Mm -hmm. for other people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing, too, because in the past, if you had a bad review as well, um, you wouldn't necessarily know what the response was from the reader but now it's like not only do you have that piece of press it's now online as well 
and then it can be retweeted and then it can be screenshot and shared in WhatsApp groups and it can be, um, you know, a parody video can be made of it on TikTok. You know, so many different ways in which that one review can then blow up and, and then it becomes a, a news story again. You know, I'm just thinking about examples of when that's happened where something innocuous that an artist has said that yeah. might have been it might have started out as a small tiny quote in a in a press suddenly ends up on like news at 10 on news night being debated <laughs> you know by people hashtagging it on twitter it's it's Absolutely. crazy <laughs> it was at the end of a, like a long day of clients and I, I think i was pretty nonsensical to be honest at the end and i was thinking Oh God, like looking back, you know, having dinner and I was looking back, thinking about some of the things that said, thinking, oh, I'm not sure I really meant that in that way, yeah. actually. And like, can I just go back and edit it? Like sometimes stuff just comes out and it's not fully formed and it's yeah. not a final, um, you know, uh, thought on something, but it's part of our processing. You know, we don't give people the opportunity to grow and to change. And I mean, and part of what you're saying, there's a moment last night as well where um, I went on Twitter and Bonnie Tyler was trending. And like most people, I thought, oh, God, has she died? So oh. Bonnie Tyler's like, she hadn't. She'd um, she'd had a moment on um, Good Morning or some daytime telly oh. um, in her live performance that people didn't like. And it was a moment where it looked like she'd been maybe miming or she'd forgotten the words or something. And people had recorded it and they put it online. I thought, bloody hell. I mean, mean, it could have been lots of things. And some people were responding saying, oh, actually, that's the bit where she does another singing part. So, you know, but just the the quickness of people Mm. to um, name and shame and to go, oh, that person slipped up there. And you think, give her a break. I don't know how old. (laughs) Tyler is but you know getting up there and doing it and she's you know let's try and just be a little less um ruthless (laughs) give people a little bit more generosity it's a hard thing getting up there there'll be times you forget your words there'll be times there'll be times where you've had a technical failure and you can't hear yourself in your in-ear monitor and but anyway I'm I'm getting on high no yeah please don't um Please don't feel like you can't do that. I'm really enjoying listening to you. It's 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 re- I agree with so much of what you say. It's just every time you say something, my mind pictures and images of all these examples of it, and it's kind of yeah, it's it's so pervasive. Um, it is. I mean, yeah. you know, I think for I work with some artists who you know they they've handed over their social media to their teams, and I think you know there's something to be thought about who owns the you know, you contact with your fans and always try and keep your newsletter list and stuff to be mm-hmm. thought of there. But the actual day-to-day interaction, I think that makes so much sense. I mean, I'd quite like to do that had I got a team because mm-hmm. I know that it affects me and it's, you know, exposure to this sort of stuff. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. We have to take breathers and breaks from it and we do have to think about how it's affecting us and, you know, how it's affecting both you know, the integration or the the space between our public persona and our private self. We've been thinking about that a lot recently. And our relationship with online and the outside world where people are generally a little kind. And not always, of course, we have huge issues with racism and sexism and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you know, people generally don't, uh, are much more controlled and contained in the outside world than yeah. they are 
time where you know <laughs> so much more bring out all our anger and hatred and jealousy and you know, <laughs> sort of desire to knock people down knock them down a peg or two who've got status higher than us I don't know if you experience this but as as a therapist who also has some element in the public eye um I've noticed this with where I do this podcast and I and I write I'm a freelance writer and then obviously I'm a therapist so it's like um when again there's a kind of um the work of one is so boundaried and um bound by ethical codes and confidential and um and then when you know clients can look you up as well and then find your world outside of that um I don't know I don't know if that's something you um have experienced more it whether you find that feeds into the work or impacts your work in some way what's what's your experience of it being um well what's my experience of it being I think I mean I'm quite analytic so Mm -hmm. in the ideal world I wouldn't have an online presence at all and that's something that sometimes I've wrestled with because there's both the sort of desire to be seen and the you know the the sort of narcissistic desire of of me as a therapist saying well I would quite like you know I would quite like the book to be known and and people to respond Mm -hmm. to but at the same time it can interfere with the work a little bit Mm -hmm. um and you have to assume that anything that's online can be found by a client. And some clients are very curious. You know, I've had clients that have found my Spotify profiles and then come in and, and wow. sort of analyze what it means about me that I've, you know, got these playlists and stuff. Or, and, and that's fair game. It's out there. It's out in the public eye and people are trying to figure out, you know, there's a natural curiosity about who your therapist is because there's some things that are held back in the room and there's good reasons and mm. um reasons why that's the case and then suddenly there's this you know you find this extra bit now oh what does that mean you know does that tell me a little bit more about who they are how they think you know um because so much is about helping the client find out their truth you know what's uh, what things mean to them that you know of course some some stuff of the you know the therapist is real in that space but they're in a different mode to how they would be if they were relating to people as a friend. And that's you know, one of the tensions um, that comes up quite regularly in therapy. And it's difficult, you know, promoting a book. I don't, there's a little bit about me in the introduction and I kind of went a bit backwards and forwards on that. And I was like, do I want to include this? Do I want to include more? Do I want to include less? I think I found a balance that's okay. Yeah. And, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, you know it's tricky when I think this is part of why I get a bit anxious about press because there's part of me that likes to be very honest and you know we're sort of talking in a different way and you know in in a way I don't have filters in this in this scenario in the way that I I very much do when I'm working or try to when I'm working with the client try and bracket some of that personal experience and here I'm saying oh it probably makes me a bit more human actually if I talk a little bit about what I think about things um if that makes sense yeah there's that word human I think that's it because I I think that's definitely been my experience of it because I I think I was quite cautious at the beginning around that and then I started noticing um that actually clients a lot of the time quite appreciated it I mean you know fingers crossed I don't know if that will always be the case but I've experienced um 
like like with you where you said people found you on Spotify, people have sort of found my podcast episodes or like might have read some stuff and then they'll say, Oh, I you know, I didn't know that, but actually it, it sort of makes them feel I I was quite surprised to realise it can make them feel a bit more like, oh, their therapist, yeah, is human and they feel more relaxed. So it's it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? It's and how different as you said, the if I link it to 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 keep it on on theme if I link it to what you're saying about the music industry changes the the therapy industry and that that interaction with the music industry of being a therapist supporting musicians equally changes alongside it where we once went from as you say this very blank screen almost therapists were quite mythical in that sense like no one knew anything about them like you wouldn't find them online um you wouldn't unless you were living like in a small village you probably wouldn't encounter them in the outside world and now now what happens when your your therapist exists in the same space as you do online and it's actually just reminded me that at one point I did have um I did discover that a friend was living with a th- with one of my clients all oh, right that we thought about um but yeah I mean we're kind of in a way working in a in a I mean you know the music industry is significant um but you do come across some similar people so some of my clients have got uh, do are aware of other people that you know are you know there's some overlap not yeah. don't you know if so for example this might come up there are a couple of festivals I used to really like go to I don't go so much anymore but I um if a client was playing at that festival then we would have one of my rules is I don't go to clients shows I want to hear about it from them and that can be attention can feel quite hurtful and rejecting you think Mm. well do you really care because this is my big show and you're not coming to it and I've thought about it a lot but I think it's a it's something that I want to have a a an agreed sort of mm. you know unless there's something about sometimes I've um you know visited um like the day before you know to do a little work before the show or something but it's um but you know what I'm trying to do in the therapy room is see life through their eyes and and both a benefit of being a therapist that knows the industry is that we've got the shared language, but there are some impressions that have been built up that maybe the client doesn't share. And really it's my job to sort of hold that and think, what's it like for them? And to inquire at times, not to always assume that I know what that's like or that dynamic is like, because there'll be times where I don't. Mm -hmm. Um, And there'll be times where, um, you know that that I'm not the most appropriate person for the job because we've got um, because there's a clash, a conflict of interest. You know, I know somebody and they're in a circle or something, um, and that's not um, not ideal. So when when that happens, then we'll find another therapist. Yeah, yeah. It's so it's it's so fascinating because it just shows the complexity of the work so well. So <laughs> it's so nuanced, isn't it? It's like very. I think a lot of similar to the way people create narratives about musicians I think people can create narratives about therapists and what the work means and what it is and that it's it's simply just sitting in a room listening to someone but it's not when you when you unpick the detail and the nuance of the work like what you're describing where you're having to very carefully assess boundaries and at the heart of it all is client safety ultimately and and 
consideration and attention and attunement and coming back to that word attachment like the attunement of your awareness of what you know of your client and constantly assessing risk and it it takes up a lot of uh emotional energy and um personal resources again to to sit to be able to sit with that um all the time um yeah so i i'm just sharing i'm <laughs> just showing a sense of uh, solidarity with you there <laughs> it's um it's interesting isn't it because i think that's one of the ways people dismiss it um mm. by saying oh it's just listening i can get friends to do that mm. it's very different yeah. Yeah. it's hard to quantify i think that's one of the problems we've got it's like oh how do you describe it you yeah. know how do you describe what the relationship is and, and can become and that it can become very intimate but it's a one-way intimacy and mm. that it's much more than just active listening that we're really um, you know, trying to bring the unconscious conscious. We're trying to, you know, sort of have different lenses to look at things. It's, um, I mean, you know, if anyone's out there and curious, I think it's one of, you know, certainly the best job I've ever had. I find yeah. it fascinating. I find it enlivening. You know, um, it's very, very rewarding, even when it's 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 very difficult. And, you know, therapy is difficult. There's mm. this also, you know, fantasy about therapy that you go into each session, you come out feeling great. No, no. no. <laughs> no. Not the way it works. And so one of the things I was trying to say early on in the book, actually, is that the nature of therapy change shifts a little bit when people are on tour. When you're in a high stress state, you're not going to be one of opening up. I mean, you know, sometimes to continue the work, maybe things are referenced, but generally you're not going to do deep trauma uncovering when someone's already in a high stress state. That's going to leave them dysregulated. And, you know, that's not going to be a dysregulated sort of, you know, maybe that's a bit of a technical term, but, you know, um, sort of emotionally more vulnerable um and really on tour so we're doing um mm. we're doing stabilizing work then really yeah. and we're trying to you know we're thinking a bit about the dynamics that uh, arise as you say through different attachment styles and the way that bands have been um or groups are um function and form and you know change mm. so we're thinking about that and we're having that secure base that person that regular person who's consistent and available and um who's able to you know that in itself is a resource I think having that mm. person available and not bringing their stuff into the room but this is just about you and how often do we have a relationship yeah. that's truly just about that you know, yeah powerful stuff I mean it's so still powerful. Powerful. I do love it yeah, me too me too <laughs> from it and you know it's interesting and I go through phases of sort of going no do I still need this yeah <laughs> do you do you um uh, do you typically would you go out on the road to support artists as well or are, are you um I don't know how much of this you would want to share you might not want to share it but um I can cut it out if so but I was wondering about um because of the way MITC works is it the case that essentially it works that you people will come to you or that you go out to them if they're touring well because I have um multiple clients and they're based across the UK the states Canada I've got some in Europe at the moment um I can't dedicate all my time to one person at the moment although I mean therapists have toured you know and do tour and there's mm -hmm. some people who specialize in that so Tiffany Hudson for example therapy on tour and mm -hmm. um 
I can't do that because I can't, I don't want to favor one client over the others and have that knock. We've already got some tension with me, you know, traveling a little bit the moment, the disruption to some sessions, trying to keep that to a minimum and, you know, Mm -hmm. shift the way I work in in a way. Um, But I have occasionally when, when it's been possible um, and it's been really necessary, then I have visited. I've I've done that a couple of times, Um, but Mm -hmm. it's, that it's a visit rather than a, and, you know, there are additional problems. Um, there can be additional challenges, let's say, in touring, um, in being a therapist on the road, because you may be working with different people in the group and you have to hold quite a lot. And there mm. might be, you might be recruit, unconsciously recruited to side with somebody. You know, mm. you get sort of you're involved in a the system there. So it's less easy to have that external position mm. commenting from the outside in and go observing mm. You become, you know, part yeah. of it, which is what we see in, um, what we see in the Metallica documentary, some kind of monster with Phil Towell, who I interviewed for the book, who's brilliant. I think he's, he's incredibly bright. It's fascinating to work with, actually. Well, interview, I don't say work with, um, but you know, he becomes part of the group and his own narcissism, and we all, you know, we all have the capacity yeah. for narcissism and to be seduced, yeah. to be seduced by, um the allure of say contributing creatively which is something that he he does in the film and he's you know reflected on this for 20 years since the post you know sort of thing about what was happening there and where the boundaries were and and, and things like that but it you know very easy to do and mm-hmm. uh, it's very and we're also I guess I see and people may feel very other therapists will feel very differently I'm sure about you know quite a lot of what I've said but to me um my view is of the artist, it is of the client holistically, is is of yes, it's about the performer part of them, but really it's about the other um, parts that people don't as often see. Mm-hmm. And so I want to hear about their experience of performance as much as I can from their eyes rather than the the sort of starry part, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it is different. Yeah. It's I'm not sure I've explained that very well, but do you know? You are, yeah, you are. Yeah, it is so different, and also, in some ways, so much more. Not that it's about anyone being interesting, but it is so much more interesting to know the reality. Um, you, I, I think what you're saying there is like not not having a sense of, I guess because then you'd be pulled into like the voyeurism of it almost, uh, rather than the truth of their subjective experience of it yes and they you know you sometimes find with people who are performers that they develop a cast a capacity to dazzle you know mm. and in the industry we have lots of language for that you know that kind of star quality that x factor they have the capacity to dazzle people which is an um imbalanced mm. you know it's a very seductive thing from both sides to do that because you know you you're receiving this kind of adoration so it's just it's a different um it's a different way of relating yeah it it must be so hard sorry I've interrupted you I was just thinking how hard that must be uh for if you are the dazzler (laughs) because I think about like how that that gets uh rewarded and and then you get into that role and it becomes very difficult to let go of it and yeah exactly. yeah and that can be some of the tension that comes up in therapy as well yeah. you know? 
that side of me that's the special bit or you know some people like Susan Rabin told me this great story of um Darren from Savage Garden that she was on a um I think it was a PAMA panel, Performing Arts Medicine Association panel with him. And he said he he reflected that he realised when he became, you know, when his status really elevated with Savage Garden, suddenly he was the funniest person in the room. Mm. And he was like, mm, this is a bit sus. <laughs> I know I'm not that funny, which I think is, has an incredible kind of self-awareness to suddenly be like, <laughs> and I'm not sure I quite buy this. Yeah. You know, but it's very intoxicating and yeah. very addictive. For some people, other people find it suspicious and then it can lead to trust issues. Who do you trust if everyone's, you know, mm. excuse my French, but kissing your ass? Yeah, Who do you yeah. trust? And I, as a therapist, I feel like it's my role to not do that, to not be one of the people that is lavishing praise. You know, of course that we, you know, celebrate things in therapy as well, but we're also drawing attention to other parts of the person. And, mm. you know, we're trying to be very grounded and, you know. Yeah was holding them to their self-awareness um mm. yeah it, it um I don't know how much how much time you have I just want to do a time check to make sure I five minutes five minutes okay I'll, I'll whittle through the next so uh, there's two more questions I want to ask and um, one was about um how it's impacted your ex- your own experience of being a fan of music whether it shifted your relationship to the bands you love or the artists you love um well I would say my experience this is related but slightly different maybe my experience of being at shows was ruined forever by being in the music (laughs) it's actually coming back now I don't analyze like I don't know you know crowd movement or the sound levels like I used to but I found that that was something that impacted you know the fan experience but it, I suppose it has um, made me think more about sort of boundaries, I guess. But I interviewed one of my heroes, like my one of my sort of pivotal musical moment for me that kind of was like a, you know, scales falling from my eyes was when a friend made me a mixtape. You might know this reference. I said it in an interview yesterday with an American guy and he's like, no, I do but this, do you remember the advert? For, there's like a chip advert in the 90s and... Um, and the advert had two little girls and the older sister, and they'd be going about their day going to school, and the older sister would go, what do you like this, Sophie? Daddy or chips? Oh, yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine, Glenn, um, made me a mixtape, and on one side it said daddy, on the other side it said chips. <laughs> what do you like this, Tamsin? Daddy or chips? And on one side it was Scar, because I was into Scar at the moment, it was like 13, 14. And on the other side was Pixies, and I think oh. it was Nefarosa, I can't remember which one. And it was just like, boom, my mind was blown. I played it, like I played that. I actually found the tape sometime recently. Oh. I played it out all the time. And I remember, you know, I just had it in the car all the time. And I was playing it to my dad. My dad really got it as well. And But I interviewed Charles Thompson. And, you know, they say don't meet your heroes sometimes. And um, because they're normal people, right? They're all amazing. <laughs> but... I mean, he was brilliant. It was fascinating. It really, I found it really interesting. He's done a yeah. lot of therapy. And I, I found, I mean, you know, it was wonderful to hear things like him saying, you know, if we'd have learned more about like people's role in conflict, which is, some, you know, one of the reasons that we put together the anger and conflict chapter, then maybe we wouldn't, you know, the band wouldn't have had the difficulties that we did. Maybe we wouldn't have split up. And you think, wow, and that would have been so different. Yeah. You know, just hearing... You know, just hearing a little bit more about, you know, what this phenomenon is like and, and 
I guess one of the things that I, I really hope the book doesn't overemphasize, I suppose, in a way, is, you know, touring can be brilliant. Some people find it very difficult just it, for, for lots of difference. It just isn't really a great fit. They enjoy mm-hmm. performing. Maybe some people don't enjoy performing particularly much. You know, yeah. that's quite, you know, some people find their groove with it or they find it enlivening and and wonderful and, you know, this incredible co-created experience. But, um, but yeah, just learning a little bit more about what it was like for people, I suppose, has changed. But for me, it's made me think a little bit more about, um, I don't know, just I suppose that, you know, the human, the very basic natural limitations of the human mind, body and spirit. And just, you know, we've yeah. got, and just how touring can challenge, you know, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's a great final sentiment. Love it. <laughs> oh, I love that. Absolutely. I forgot about that advert. Fantastic. And it's reminded me of the mixtape, how amazing mixtapes were. Yeah. yeah that's, that's it. That's it. Now we've got playlists on me. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh I was gonna I before you go I was gonna ask you what's next for MITC the name of that's changed as well hasn't it because it was music industry therapist collective and is it now music industry therapist collective and coaches or no it's well oh this no. is a long story but well the short version is um at one point we thought um oh we'll have a coaches branch um <clears throat> and uh, but coaching as you know is unregulated and we we had we along the short of it is we couldn't find someone to to run and to vet that side I thought right. I don't have the skill set to do that actually and um, so so we've we've um we've not gone there uh, okay. we've our therapists are coaches and they they blend and I think that's an, a really interesting thing actually I think that's something that labels will really like because there's you know some kind of measurable changes and things like that and you know yeah. it's com- mm-hmm. much more practical much more directive than, than the sort of therapy I do anyway is um but um but yeah future so uh, but but one of the problems is we can't change the facebook name for some reason so the facebook i know well we i think i think we keep running into problems anyway we we might be able to fix that at some point but what's next for mitc well so we're going to so what we do is we so we offer one branches we offer therapy individual and group therapy continue to do that we'll probably develop some more relationships um from referral providers charities things like that develop our relationships with charities that um provide funding for people who are low fee um then there's the psychoeducation branch which is we do workshops places like atlantic and mourners and cobalt stuff like that i'd like to turn i think the book is pretty dense for lots of people and um, and that might be off-putting and i think that information can be delivered in a way that's more digestible um, especially if you're on the on tour and in a high stress state I mean absolutely by the book if you're out there but um <laughs> you know I think we could have sort of short courses and that we yeah. will that's the next plan is to develop different chapters and sections of chapters into brief online courses like an app or something so we're going to need some sponsorship for that so we're starting to talk about that and we're talking to someone about an audio book um and really, it's just to keep um, sort of drawing attention to the work of other people as well. I mean, I'm a strong believer that no one person has all the answers here. This is a group effort. We've got phenomenal researchers out there doing stuff that I'd never be able to do. And we've got, um, you know, I, I think one of the things I like about MITC really is that it's 
pluralistic, I suppose, you know, another therapy term, but it's bringing in all of these different, mm. you know, experiences. Uh, people have worked as artists, you know, we've got Ryan from Maroon 5 and Simon from the Boo Radleys and mm. um, Matt from Freestylers. And, you know, and we've got people that worked as PRs and, and labels and, you know, so mm. that kind of diversity of thought, but there's also, we work in very different ways. And I think that's a strength. And I think mm. broadly in the industry, that's a strength. I'm kind of, mm not anti-competition, a bit of a competition quite healthy, but I'm anti-market dominance for sure. And yeah. I think something about, you know, how do we also draw attention to the great work of like the roadie clinic and the States and passenger recovery and, you know, Susie Green's the back lounge. And hopefully we can think of different mm-hmm. ways to also make sure that people have access to these incredible services mm-hmm. um, and these sources of knowledge that um, help people feel less alone, peer support, Tonic Rider are doing amazing yeah. things. And, you know it's just trying to make sure that people know where to know where to find these these people that are you know we're all on the same side as far as I'm concerned so yeah yeah Yeah, it's all about that collaboration for that purpose isn't it ultimately to support to support people through this um and yeah yeah, well, I personally think it's a fantastic book. So yeah, I've, got it, I've got it here. It's amazing. And I love how it looks like, um, what's it called? Uh, touring chest. Yeah, like, like yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's brilliant. That fantastic design came from Type 40, Ryan McGee, or Ryan McGee, actually, so from oh. Irish. Um, but yeah, I'm glad you think so. Thank you. And there's, oh, you know, okay. It's available globally now on Amazon and all sorts of places in the UK, Rough Trade, Waterstone. You can find it cheaper, actually, if you Google. <laughs> so, so, um, we've got a discount for, for people who buy over five copies in the UK, but actually you can still find it at like Browns and some other places mm. a bit cheap. So that's my top tip. I'll put I'll put all the links for that on the on the show notes and and how can people get hold of you if you want them to? Would you like people to I don't know how you want people to follow you on Twitter or social media or anything like that. Well, we we don't take referrals from the socials. We've got, you know, the traditional route of just emailing us, um, emailing info at musicindustrytherapist.com. So, so the websites are musicindustrytherapist.com is for MITC, as you might have guessed. Touringmanual.com is for the book. Um, EmbletonPsychotherapy.com is me and um, you can follow us on the socials at we are MITC or at Tamsin Embleton apart from Facebook which is at Tamsin Embleton 2 um, and um, yeah by all means keep up we were sort of um, what are we doing we are uh, dropping like sort of chapter previews and stuff on Instagram and things at the moment mm-hmm. and quotes and testimonials and things like that and if people buy it but I would say, please give us a review somewhere. Um, it tends to, yeah, mm. give us a review on Amazon or Goodreads or Good Books, whatever that one is, and stuff and help, help us get the word out there. Tag us, you know. Yeah, yeah, that reminds me. I need to put a review up. that would be wonderful actually my my next bit of work for me personally is I need to you know work on my media training and work on my relationship with these reviews I don't need to keep like looking for them online I think I need to let the book the book's its own thing now it's going to do it in the world people will interact with it and that's fine and I you know be sort of have a bit of distance from that I think in a way yeah another 90s reference if you build it they will come as and it was like the yes, dreams exactly. yeah. <laughs> oh, <That's> the 90s 
Yes, love it. Let's, let's have another catch up because yeah. be so, it's been such a pleasure today. I hope I haven't oh. like, I don't know, revealed too no. much. I don't no, know. it's been it's been fantastic. I really appreciate your time. But yeah, mm-hmm. I'd love I'd love a catch up. Um, Brilliant. We'll do for a couple then. That would be really nice. Yeah, that would be lovely. Take care. Take care. It was really good to speak to you. Bye. Bye bye.